Welcome to episode five of Tables Turned, the show when I get the chance to spin the spotlight 180 degrees and speak to those who are usually asking the questions. This week's guest is the enigmatic Richard Gillis, a well-known figure within the sports and especially sports business sectors. He's a journalist, podcaster and author with his 2016 book, The Captain Myth, The Ryder Cup and Sports Greats Leadership Delusion, a book you can find a link to in the description. He's definitely not the singer, songwriter and composer who worked with the Western fable, The Ballad of Cable Hoke, or the Cornish sun cream brand who own richardgillis.com, something that still grates with today's guest. I really love this chat with Rich, someone I first really met six years ago when he moderated a panel for me in Shoreditch, an event that sticks in both our minds and you'll hear why later on. We covered many points in his career, the highs and lows, times that have included writing fake viewer questions for the lunch break during Channel 4's coverage of the cricket and riding the internet wave in the early 2000s of sport business. And most memorably, his time in the West Indies for the 2007 Cricket World Cup, covering the Irish team's involvement. A tournament that included their defeat of the mighty Pakistan team, led by Bob Warmer. Shortly after, Bob was found dead in his room, and Rich found himself close to the centre of it all after spending what turned out to be his last day with him, and was staying just three doors down from where it happened. The media circus that ensued sounds bonkers. So lots for us to cover and some amazing stories from someone who is a storytelling great. Before we get going though, please do give us a rating or review on Apple as it really helps people find the podcast and give us a follow on any other platform you may be using. If you do enjoy it, please share with one person you think will appreciate you doing so. And a big thank you to Julian Moore at Mills and Reeve for kindly allowing us to record at their office in London. Rich and I started off discussing the recent news around his favourite team, Spurs, and their managerial shuffle and whether the captain myth could also be the manager myth. The, the book was, I mean, it, the, the book was focused on Ryder Cup and, the, and golf and the captaincy of Ryder Cup, which is, which is slightly different. But um, it, the idea that we get leadership wrong when we talk about it, and particularly in the media and particularly journalists, because we attribute... Um, so much credit and blame to the decisions of one person at the top. So that was the, and the each captain and each manager has their own story and they have a myth that they carry around with them. So we project onto them and it's happening right now. So Mourinho is coming in and he is the sort of dull technocrat boring football, the special one, all of those. He's a brilliant storyteller and always was. Um, as soon as he appeared in our lives in, you know, for Chelsea, we, we had a very clear idea of who he was and what he was. And he's, he's got a, he's always been a brilliant manipulator of the media and still is. Now, when it comes to football managers, their impact on the team and the way, you know, performances is obviously a factor, but it's also amongst lots of other factors. And you, you know, we could have that debate, but my book, it came about because I was talking to a lot of old golfers. I mean, I was, I was running a magazine called Sport Business and you get offered up lots of famous golfers to be interviewed at a certain time in their career. So I had over the years interviewed all of them, you know, famous ones. 
And I thought, well, there might be a book in that. So I went and, and you know, I, I talked to David Luxton, who is a, is a renowned sports book agent. And he said, yes, okay. I'll, and he then got, got us a deal with Bloomsbury, um, Harry Potter's publisher. It's obviously me and JK Rowling keeping that place open. <laughs> um, and it started out as a sort of history of the captaincy. And then I, and this talks to the sort of nature of this conversation is that actually when you talk to famous people, they give you anecdotes that they've told 150 times and they're, they're anecdote factories. You know, they are, they are just generating story after story. Now, if you haven't heard them, that's great because you think, oh, this is, this is really entertaining. And then you go and read a previous interview and they've told the other bloke exactly the same thing. So then I thought for the second draft of the book, I had a first draft, which I thought, well, this is a really boring book actually, because I wouldn't read this because I've heard all these stories before. So one of the things that I went back into the second draft and said, well, I'm going to take everything out that I knew already. And because if I knew it, I think other people who would be wanting to buy a book like this, they would know these stories as well. So that then became, it started to shape that and it started to have more of an idea within the center of it. And and that was quite a painful process because it's actually quite easy to write a history of the Ryder Cup captains. I didn't want to do that. And I thought, well, why not? You've got a big publisher here. They're going to get behind it and give it a push. Um, why don't you do something good rather than just something that's going to be, you know, just okay. So that was quite a painful decision, but it was based on the fact that I, I didn't want to hear those stories again. So I wanted to sort of question a bit more obviously what captaincy leadership was. One of the reasons for doing that was because I am part of it. I do, I do sport, but I also do business reporting. And, and that's where I sort of have a dual sort of bit to my career and always have done. And I've always sort of tried to maintain both elements of that um, business in a, in a sort of not really in a stocks and shares business news type way, but, but just these sort of issues around leadership management um, sort of, I'm, I'm very interested in psychology and the interest in, and particularly around behavioral economics. So that all played into the book itself. That's why I ended up going and rewriting it basically. Having known you for a little bit, you don't seem one that's going to follow the crowd and do the same as everyone else. You want to do something that's different, that takes a different approach that no one else really thought about. Yeah, I guess so. I think it's, it's not, well, a bit of that is conscious because there is, you know, I've been freelance since I left sport business. So 2004, essentially I've had, I've had a period of employed work in the last sort of few years, but essentially been freelance. And to do that, you have to create a niche for yourself and you have to, you have to get over the bit of it's about, it's all me, 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 you know, because actually it is about me, me, me. And it is, um, unofficial partner is a, is a, I thought, well, create the brand. It's an interesting sort of counterpoint because I've run magazines and, you know, I've had to write the stories that everyone has to write that toe the line. And, and to get the interview, you have to do, say the right things and do the right things and send the questions in advance, send the questions in advance. And, you know, even to the extent of emailing questions and email, email answers come back from their PR agency. And there is a sea of that sort of stuff out there across every form, you know, and, and that's why I'm now, I like podcast as a, as a, a form because it means that you can actually get people, nudge them off their practiced lines and anecdotes and, and just move them into more inter entertaining or interesting territory that perhaps they wouldn't be 
able to do if you were doing it, you know, from press conferences are the worst. You and I have been in press conferences. They're terrible. They don't, you know, they're just based on pre-prepared media, media sort of engagement strategies, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, and it's resulted in very tedious, tedious outcomes. That doesn't mean the people themselves are tedious, but actually the, you know, you can see this in politics, but it's particularly true in sport. When you, you know, one of the things that I was disappointed with initially was having moved into journalism, how boring a lot of the sports people were that I was talking to because they're very narrow, but sometimes they're much more interesting when you take the microphone away from them. So trying to get to that real person is the bit that is more difficult, takes a lot of time, but is podcasts are quite a good route in, I think. Quite a few of the people I've spoken to work in the kind of TV or the radio side. So it's very much they're under pressure to get certain sound bites. So those press conferences or straight after a game, or you get 10 minutes to sit down with a player and get a little bit more out of them. But they've got different pressures. While you don't have that same kind of time pressure, whether that's going to be written or whether that's going to be podcast, you get more time to do things and get what you want out of it. Yeah, I, I think there's a that's true. The, the nature of the daily... I mean, it's not daily, it's hourly or, you know, the, the, the pressure to create news lines is one that you have to get out of. You just can't produce good stuff in that environment, I don't think. And there are some brilliant people proving me wrong on that, but they would tell you they would much prefer a longer lead time in. I mean, it's interesting how we're seeing organisations breaking away or trying to get out of that rut. So whether that's in sport with the athletic, for example, is a good example where they're trying to give them, you know, they're either ahead of the story or a long way behind the story and giving masses of context. Things like tortoise is quite an interesting, slightly pretentious in terms of the tone of voice, but I, I like what they're trying to do. It just leads to the really, you know, that, that, so how do you feel? Like the post-match interview is the classic, isn't it? You know, how do you feel? Like, yeah, great. And you're never going to get, anything interesting you're just all you're doing is as you say getting a line which then feeds into a headline which then gets pushed out and it's just completely disposable so it is a it's a race to the bottom I spent most of my last 20 years trying not to do that it's quite difficult you have to, to get paid sometimes you have to do it you have to play that game it was never something you aspired to go into when you were younger no i was a teacher um when i left college and i i um i had a peculiar sort of route in because I was about, I was teaching a sixth form college, state sixth form college, and I was teaching A-levels and I quite fancied being a journalist. I didn't really know what that meant. What subject were you teaching? Um, I was uh, teaching economics and, and business. Um, never having been worked in a business before, I was, you know, telling uh, 16, 17 year olds how to run businesses, which is, which is uh, odd. There was a moment when in a sort of, I think it was 99, I said, right, okay, I'm going to try and uh, learn how to be a journalist. And, and because I think because I was teaching and you're in that environment, you get, you sort of overemphasize the role the, or the need for qualification. So I thought I need, my knee-jerk reaction was, okay, well, I need to be qualified to be a journalist. I need to go and do a master. I had a degree, I, you know, let me do a master's degree in journalism and, and surely then I will be a journalist. So I go off to uh, London College. I have a, a sort of interview. It's all fine. You go in and on the way out, and I was looking at the sort of notice board in the college sort of corridor. And there was a, there was a bit of paper pinned to the wall, which had a hotmail address. And it said, if you're interested in cricket um, and want to write, email us. And so I did, I, you know, and I, I picked up this 
took the, uh, the address and I wrote off to them and they wrote back again, fairly anonymous, just a name on a hotmail address. And, uh, they said, um, can you write a, a cricket, a report of the morning's play, you know, just to make it up. So I did that anyway, they came back and then two weeks later, channel four rang up and said, do you, do you need a job? Because we, we just need someone quickly. Someone's dropped out. The, you know, it was half term. I said, okay. Yeah. And they said, can you be at Lords on Thursday? And <laughs> so, yeah, right. And, and so off we went. And, uh, the first person I met was Richie Benno. Who's a lot taller than you imagine. He is. He's tall and lame and, and a personal hero. So if, you know, if you're asking me for my top three favorite people, um, he would be in there. I can't think who the other two would be, but he was just someone I grew up with and, you know, he, I loved cricket, played cricket and worshiped Richie. So he was literally the first person and, you know, he was the first person I interviewed formally and in, you know, in a journalistic sense, because I mean, famously he didn't, he wrote all his own stuff. He didn't ever let people ghostwrite anything. And he was a, you know, he trained to be, when he gave up cricket, playing for Australia, he was captain of Australia, and then went to train to be a journalist and was doing police beats and things like that. And because he wanted to be a journalist, not just a pundit. So I then went along and they said, well, can you interview, this was sort of channel four, and we just want an interview, Richie, that we can bung out somewhere and put in Channel 4's match program in, you know, whatever it is. So I then go off and I, and I literally go to Dixon's, get a tape recorder with a tape and, you know, batteries. I'm absolutely uh, worried. And in I go and, you know, it's a, it's a sort of 20 minutes of, of sitting in front of Richie Benno and him talking and me just sort of staring at him. and <laughs> Idolising uh, him. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> God, no, I mean, I, you know, I would dread to think what, what that was like for him. Were you struggling to talk? Well, it just, it was, I mean, I wasn't, the thing is I wasn't, he probably thought, and the general impression of people that were working at Channel 4 at the time was that he, this bloke me, um, is probably qualified in some way because I was 30, I wasn't 20, you know, so I should be a professional by that point. And obviously this was the first, literally the first interview I'd ever done. So I'm standing there and then, or, you know, we're sitting down and he was, it was like interviewing him off the telly, you know, it was, it was that. So very starstruck, completely hopeless from my perspective. But I then go off with the, you know, Richie's voice on my tape recorder. Were you given the questions to ask him or did you have to come up with those? Um, I think there was just like a sort of general, I, I can't remember, just like a general sense of, I'll just go and talk to Richie and we'll, you know, and obviously he's, he's a brilliant talker and, you know, it was, what do there you think? There are certain people who just make it easy, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic. You don't really have to set them up much. You just have to introduce and then let them go. Yes, exactly. And he was, uh, I mean, one of the things about the job was that I never got to know him as over, overing it, but I was in his orbit and I was always, you know, that sort of, you know, the team of, that were presenting it. And it was hugely successful that, that uh, you know, they did, did it brilliantly, Channel 4. The best bit of the job was, was people would, in, would email in and Mark Nicholas and Richie Benno and Simon Hughes um, Barry Richards would be sitting at lunchtime and answering reader, you know, viewers questions. And the problem was that no one was sending questions in. So I then started writing the questions from, you know, I was in one of the huts out the back and then taking these made up emails and putting them, giving them, and they were saying, Oh, you know, and some of them, and so I remember the one question was, um, it was, there was a question about Alex Stewart and the future of Alex Stewart, his former dipped and people were saying, you know, Stewart out, etc. And he was the wicketkeeper batsman. And, you know, brilliant. But what do we do when in a post Alex Stewart world, you know, so I wrote a question saying, and there was a, the debate at the time was, would it be from knots or 
you know, a, a, a wicketkeeper from the counties and would they be good enough bats? So I then asked the question about, well, is it easier to turn Ian Bell, who was a, at that time very young, very good batsman, into a wicketkeeper or is it... Um, is it easier to train a wicketkeeper to be a batsman? Anyway, that kept them going for about an hour, you know, and and throughout the day they were there were references back to this question for the, and they were so pleased with themselves, thinking it had come from you know Tony from Uxbridge, um, and actually it hadn't remotely. So and then there was a sort of you know that sense of interaction that that obviously is created now through social media that wasn't quite there at the time, but everyone was happy enough, and you thought, well, actually, well maybe this. You know, it's not as difficult as I'm making out. So how did you go from doing that, which presumably you could have carried on doing, to going more into the sports business side and ending up in the sports business? I, I think there was a probably going to be a limit on the Channel 4 job because there was like a, it was a, a season following it around. It was great. It was great fun and lots of matches. And you turn up, you know, you drive around the country going to, to test matches. But really, it was a quite a one-dimensional job. You know, it was a real starter job. And I wasn't a starter, you know, I was older than that. So I needed, I, you know, realistically I needed a job. And so I, but I did give up teaching. So I stopped teaching at that point. At this stage, did you have family? Yes. I didn't so, have kids. I, we were married, but I wasn't, we didn't have. So there was a, a little bit of kind of pressure, but not, you need to look after kind of three people at home. Yeah, that's right. And my wife had a really good job. So I was okay from that perspective from immediate, you know, we've got to pay the mortgage. So there was a bit of flexibility there, not, not enormous amounts, but there was still, it was, it was okay from that. We didn't have kids. So it was, it was all right. But I just wanted a job because I thought, well, okay, this is my career now. I need to work out how to do this. So I had a nice summer of, you know, mucking about. And then I, again, just saw a job for a magazine I'd never, never heard of, which is sport business. And the interview, I remember, with Kevin Roberts, who I, is, is still a mate, and they wanted a sub-editor. Again, didn't really know what that was. And uh, I subsequently found out you were just sort of correcting people's mistakes and it all came through. But it was actually a really, really useful grounding. So, so I, I became sub-editor and I was sort of writing features at the, at the time as well. So it was a full-time job. And we were in a little office in um, Blackfriars Road. And then they got a load of investment money. They got like, Warburg Pincus gave them a load of cash, you know, 10, 15 million quid. And the idea being- Which year would this be talking? 2000, this is your classic So just com. before the, the everything imploded? Yeah, it might have been just after. I mean, the, the, the money I think came in, in sort of 2001 too. And it was all predicated on an idea of, of matching sponsors and, and rights holders online. So you're selling sponsorship via the internet and the technology wasn't there at that point, didn't make any money. And, but we, we moved from a small office in Blackfriars with 20 people to, you know, a massive floor in Waterloo with 150 people. We weren't making any more money at this, you know, then than we were initially. But I then became, I was a sub-editor and then, and basically what that meant was that everything flowed through me. So all the copy would come in from various journeys. We had people in Germany, America, Australia, and we had an office and we had a really quite a large team of feature writers and news writers. And all of that copy would come to me. I would be editing it. I would be putting heads on it, subheads, pull quotes, doing all the, you know, functional stuff and then picking, choosing photos and pictures and captions. So you were, le- you were learning how to be a journalist on the basically job. basically learning how, to, how things worked and how a, how a production of a magazine or a publication or online works um, on a fundamental basis. So it was, it was great from that perspective. 
the other bit that was really good and has helped me in good stead is that it was a fantastic place to um, for contacts because you were out and it's a peculiar world. And I quite often say to people who say, oh, you know, well, I want to get into sport or the sports business or whatever. And it's really, it's quite a strange, smaller world than you might imagine once you're in there. And it's full of people that you see all the time. But I met them when they were, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And now some of them are running things and we've got serious jobs. Um, but it was brilliant for learning how sport really works fundamentally where the money goes, why it goes there, what the sort of incentives are, who's doing what to who, who's selling, who's buying, and, and where are people making money in the, in the middle? All of which starts to help when you're, you know, if you look at sport now and you look at FIFA and IOC and the Olympics and football clubs and Formula One and horse racing, all of whom then, you know, these questions come around why are they doing this and what the, what's the story there? And essentially it's, it's, the stories are very similar. They just re- repeat over time, but you can sort of understand on, on a reasonably sophisticated level, just how things work, which is really useful. So you had the sort of practical journalist skills bit, but you also had a sort of real education in how sport works and also a brilliant place to, to build contacts. So that was a really invaluable for me because since then, basically I left sport business in 2004, I went to Ireland. Since then I've sort of, I've done other things and I've been a general sort of feature writer interviewer, but I've quite often found myself gravitating back towards sports stuff because I know quite a bit and I can bring value to a story that, you know, maybe some other people can't. Is that one of the times you look back with quite rose tinted glasses of Maybe one of your favourite times. It was is a game of two halves. It was a it was a I, I loved it to death. I loved the people. Um, I loved the initial bit of it. We were we were just like a group of people. And we were in the pub all the time, and you know, we, we in fact the office was above a pub. And so my first meet, my literally my first day, we had a lunchtime meeting, editorial meeting, and and it finished at six o'clock. I was absolutely smashed, and you know, got home. And Penny, my wife said, is this what it's going to be like every day? I said, I don't, I have no idea, but it was bloody brilliant. Um, and it was, and it was a monthly magazine. It was a monthly magazine with uh, quite a substantial staff. So the, uh, the actual output of all those conversations was quite marginal, you know, compared to now you have to sort of deliver tweets and features and opinions about, you know, 20 opinion columns a week and blah, blah, blah. Then you're right. Okay, well, I'm going to write a feature this month, you know, or I'm going to write a feature in three months' time. I remember there's a there's a guy who is um, again got a big job. He was marketing director of the football league, Drew Barron, and he was he we gave him his first job. Really, he was like a, a feature writer for for sport business, and he didn't write anything for about three months. He was just he was he was there, and he wrote, he wrote. I remember I always talked to him about this, but he wrote something on the the business of replica shirts, which you know, every feature meeting we would have, we'd say, okay, well, so what are the features this month? And Drew would pitch the same story and we'd be like, no, nah, we don't really fancy that this month. You know, we'll, we'll put that on the back burner. And literally he would, he would be sitting in the corner of the office and he just didn't do anything. It got, you know, it got better, but uh, for Drew in many ways. And he got a really good job working for, um, for marketing magazine before we then got into the business side of it. But it was, it was that sort of atmosphere. It was great fun. And then suddenly it wasn't. Suddenly the people who brought the money in the sort of taps stopped and the people, you know, then it became who's going to get the sack, you know, and, and it became this sort of very negative thing. And you became much more having conversations of, 
how are we going to squeeze more money out of this and how can we flog editorial? How can we, you know, all of those old games that publishers have to play or think they have to play to try and make, make a living. Um, and it became really boring and, and not much fun and stressful. And then I left. So, you know, I've, I've got a really fond memories of it, but so the last year wasn't much fun, but the first three were great. So then you went to the Irish times. Yes. Did you move over to Ireland for, for Yes, we moved to Dublin. Um, was this the first time you kind of lived outside of London? Uh, yes. We moved to Dublin in 2004 and uh, we were there for three years and we had Olivia at that point and that was one of the reasons for, for going um, because we were both in full-time work and I said, well, look, why don't I go freelance and give us a bit more flexibility? And then I got a job working for the Irish Times and it started out as a sort of writing some sport businessy type things. And then um, I got, <laughs> I think um, Malachi Logan is a sports editor at the Irish Times. He's a brilliant guy. And then Ireland qualified for the uh, Cricket World Cup. And um, like many people, I, did, I didn't realise that Ireland played cricket. So, and, but I was completely wrong about that. There's a, there's a very storied history, which I was ignorant of and had to learn very quickly. But essentially I then in 2007 went to cover the Cricket World Cup in, in, um, started in Jamaica and then Ireland won through, they, they beat Pakistan famously and they then won through to the sort of what was called the super eights. And we moved to Guyana and various other places. And the big moment of that was, um, Bob Warmer. So Bob Warmer, who was the Pakistan coach, Ireland beat Pakistan on the Saturday, on that Saturday night, he died in his hotel room. Now I was three doors or three or four doors up from his hotel room. We we're all in the same hotel in, in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, and because Ireland had won his death and, and subsequently, um, seen as a terrible autopsy, um, it was seen as murder. They, they described as murder. It was defined as murder. So someone had killed him in his hotel room. Suddenly it became this global story. And the, and the story then, talking of myths and how they sort of grow, it became, well, this is a, a match-fixing sort of story. So Pakistan lost. Ireland, complete outsiders, won. And then the coach has, of Pakistan has been done in on the Saturday night in his hotel room. Now, the day before, I'd spent almost all day with Bob Warman on his own because one, he was quite lonely and he was at the end of his tenure at Pakistan and Pakistan was a incredibly poisonous sort of uh, team environment to be around. And we, we just talked about cricket and we did an interview for the pay for the Irish times, but we spent quite a long, a long time sort of just chatting and, and talking um, much of it on the record. We had a, you know, I still have my old tape recorder, and then he died on that night, the, the, the night after. So it was really quite a shock. And I was right in the middle of that story. And suddenly it became a, you know, I remember we'd come in, everyone, all the players were in the, in this same hotel, the Pegasus Hotel in, in Jamaica. And all the press were in there. It was fine. And then that happened. And then it became this global news moment. And it became this, sort of, you're inside this story that goes around, you know, it's on leading the news in the States. And, you know, you've got, sort of these suntan American anchors coming down, you know, and I remember, remember going into the car park and uh, the guy who used to read the news on Sky was in there, out there doing, I think, oh, you know, this is getting bigger than the, the normal. So I just followed that story. So it became this thing and it was like- Were a, you kind a, of covering it or were you almost part of it? 
Um, it was a. Uh, I wasn't part of it. I didn't kill him. I want that no. On the but record. I'm thinking you were the you were the one. You, you know, you got all this conversation from the day yes. before. Yeah, yeah. That presumably people wanted to get hold of or find out if there was anything in there that they could use. And yeah. you were only three doors down. So yeah, yes is the answer. So I was I was. Uh, I did a started doing stuff for the Guardian and the Observer, and and when I came out the back of that, I started sort of getting work there. So it was completely selfishly, it was a good career moment because suddenly I was prominent, and when you're freelance, that that helps. And then I started getting more work and broader work after that moment. But it was terrible for obviously for Bob when he died. But mentally, he also, mentally, it must have been quite a hard one to deal with. Yeah, although it was it was. I felt it's I really a media circus around something that yeah it was the first time I'd seen a, you know up close the 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 proper news sort of tease <laughs> yeah and and the manipulation of the story and how then you know talking to talking about news lines and needing something to say how that becomes manipulated and and I really feel sorry for his wife his wife you know was told initially that he was murdered and that was that came from the police you know that was a press conference where the pathologist said oh he's been murdered and they thought he'd been strangled and actually he died of natural causes but he and he fell on the uh, fell on the sink and there's a bone broken his neck and that's why they thought he'd broken it uh, someone had strangled him but it was it was so his wife thought he'd been murdered and then there was speculation about suicide and then you can imagine that you know all of this from when you're sitting in South Africa and this is happening in in Jamaica must have been absolutely you know, heartrending or shattering. So, um, that bit of the story and also the way in which the police behaved was quite an eye opener in terms of how they fed stories, certain stories to the press and the way in which the sort of story gathered pace. I'm very, I'm always really interested in how stories evolve and, and where they come from and the sort of shape of them and where they, you know, there's a, um, when you're looking at them from the side, just trying to sort of work out why stories are going in a particular direction and then obviously how you can influence them to go in certain directions and and that's when you start it's that to, psychological aspect that you were talking about earlier there is there's certainly psychological but it's also the manipulation by media you know pr and by journalists on both sides trying to make a story go one way or the other there's a sort of trying to make it narrative shaped when life isn't narrative shaped it's very messy and doesn't fit a under words, but you have to produce a under words. There has to be a, you know, in stories famously a start, middle and end. And actually most stories don't have a start, middle and end. And it's, it's that sort of external manipulation of a story, which I think is really very interesting. I find that bit of the job and always have done, found that interesting in the way people respond to stories and want to move. You can feel how they're like, sometimes stories are sort of tell themselves, you know, they, they're sort of like pushing water downhill. It becomes easy um, when actually the reality is sometimes different. My take on podcasts is that particularly interview based podcasts is that there is a opportunity to get people in a more sort of relaxed state frame of mind. It does depend on environment a bit you know, and all the, all the sort of technical stuff, the technology gets in the way and, you know, there's, but trying to have a human conversation between two people, that's where podcasts do really well. And there is an appetite for this. And that's why podcasts I think are, are popular, some of them, because 
they don't feel media manipulated. They don't feel like you're, you know, people are feeding lines. And when I think it, it feels a lot like blogging, you know, and I, Unofficial Partner was a blog initially in 2007 when I came back from Ireland, because again, I wanted just to write in a way that wasn't, didn't fit the sort of format of a newspaper article. So you allow it a bit more flexible and also interested in developing my own tone of voice, my own sort of voice that I can own. Because I think that actually one of the lessons of the last 20 years has been the way in which influence, for want of a better word, has moved to the individual and away from institutions like newspapers. So people are increasingly buying, uh, this is a purely a commercial decision on my part, but it was obvious that if you are a bylined reporter doing good work for the Guardian or the Irish Times or whoever, people wouldn't know who you were because you're, you're, you'd have to reduce your own tone of voice. And that's, you know, a good reporter. You don't notice a good reporter. Which was part of my reason for wanting to do this podcast. Yeah. Was to flip that light on the people who usually are shining a light on someone else, whoever they're interviewing. Yet these people are kind of a crucial to that part in enabling that to be as good as it can possibly be. Yeah. I mean, I'm a massive fan of journalists, good journalists and journalism. And I know the difference between the two, bad, good and bad. Very, very occasionally done some good one, good stuff. And I've done a lot of bad stuff. So I know what the difference is. That's the concern of the last, you know, the internet age has been how you protect proper journalism in whatever form I'm not bothered about, particularly about newspapers, whether that's the form or not, but actually it's, it's the journalism bit which has to be protected, but that's a you know bigger question. But the, the actual people who are doing it, one of the problems is that you then you're getting into the sort of, when you go into a newspaper and you start at the bottom and you're a, a reporter, that's almost like an entry level position. And then you look up and you see that all the money's going to the columnists the commentators and the analysts. So obviously built into that set of incentive set is, well, I need to be one of those if I'm going to earn a sustainable living and they're more protected because people are buying, they can, they've got an argument when the marketing people come in and say, look, we've done a survey and people are buying the paper because Richard Littlejohn or Matthew Paris is, is writing that. That's why they buy the newspaper. And there is a a marketing value in those people and they're protected. So it's their own brand that is protected. Whereas if people say, oh, you know, oh, I really like the coverage of city coverage or business news or whatever, it's very difficult to stand out unless you're breaking brilliant stories on a regular basis. And that is enormously difficult. So that's, that was, that's one incentive for creating your own brand. You know, that's why I, unofficial partner, I, I thought, well, I'll, in my little niche, I will create a little brand, which at least whatever the form, whether it's blogging 10 years ago, whether it's podcast now, whatever it will be in a few years time, I can at least evolve the brand over the form and, and people will know what it basically what it's about. Yeah. I think that's definitely more, you know, most of the people I'm speaking to, David Garrido has his own podcast, La Liga Lowdown. You've got Kate Borsay, who's got a podcast with the offside rule with Lindsay yeah. Hooper. More and more are developing this way because it's, they can say what they actually want to say and have that longer form, which is more interesting rather than the bite-sized bits all the time that can get really just frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I think so. The counter to that is a lot of it is unedited. And I, again, having been an editor, I know that editors are a good thing and you've got to be careful that you don't become self-indulgent. And I've written 5,000 word blog posts, which could easily have done with some trimming. 
I think that what's happened or what is happening now is that in, again, in the same way as blogs evolved, you know, newspapers suddenly cottoned onto it. It's quite a cool thing to have a blog because it's a different tone of voice and they effectively became just columnists in newspapers. I think what we're seeing now and this year or the last 18 months has been the professionalization of podcasting. And there is going to be a move where, you know, obviously if the BBC are now putting podcasts out right, left and center, it's quite difficult if you're going and saying, right, okay, because there is always a bit of lee room for quality of set quality, you know, sound quality, etc. The amateur stroke authentic element of podcasting, I worry that that will get lost in just in the you know just the sheer gulf of professional podcasting, or you know, effectively, there's no difference between that and radio, which is a good thing in many ways because it gives the, the listener much more choice of what to listen to. You can get you can dive into rabbit holes, and if you're in a rabbit hole, and if you own a rabbit hole, then that's great. So it'd be interesting to see where it go, where it goes and how it evolves or whether it just shoves onto something else. I stopped blogging because Twitter, basically, I just, uh, you know, it became a, well, why don't I just exist on Twitter because I can do. Which you still do, I think. Which I do. I'm beginning to, t- well, I, I, it's, it's sort of, sometimes I, I fall in and out of love with Twitter, but I'm enjoying, I, I, I'm hoping podcasts sort of grow. Yeah. And your one's very enjoyable. Thank you. With some great guests, obviously tapping into that very extensive book of yours. Yeah. If you're going into something like that, say you a Martin Bayfield or something like that, a bigger name, say. Yeah. What's what kind of prep do you do as a I'm always interested in because we all have our own ways of doing it. Yeah. And there's people who I do it as a hobby rather than people like yourselves, where basically that's your career. So listening is I think the one thing that I've learned. That if I can, coming out more and more, yes. If I can say what that I've learned from that time when I sat in front of Richie Benno to now, I've learned and taught myself to to shut up and to listen. And um, that's that's the number one rule in my my head. In terms of preparation, there is obviously you need to do it and do some. The easy thing to say would be, oh, you have to, you have to do loads and loads of preparation, loads of research. I sometimes find that that gets in the way and makes it, it makes me a bit still. You know too much. You may, you know too much and you're sort of leading people into anecdotes that you want them to tell or you, you're prompting them in a way that is not natural. And to get more out of them, sometimes I just want the conversation to flow. So quite often I write a load of questions down and then think, well, I'm not going to, not going to take all of these in. I'm just going to sort of go in, in themes. And say, right, let's let's get some bit of white space between. If you're talking to someone for half an hour, you know, th- let's talk about this topic, this topic, and that topic. And it might be about them and their, you know, it might might be a narrative, a lifetime narrative type of story. Um, but allow the conversation to take place because that's the only way you'll get anything new. So if you're sitting with Martin Bayfield or with Ed Smith, who do lots of interviews with lots of different people, be able to respond to them rather than sitting there looking at the questions. And, you know, studying and, and basically to the point of listening, the danger is that if you've got a load of questions in front of you, you are basically waiting for them to stop talking for you to write answer, ask another question. And by default, you're not listening to them. You're just... Which is a very, very hard thing to do. It's really hard. If you're just listening and you're not actually thinking, suddenly when the other person comes to the end of what they want to talk about, your brain has gone completely dead in terms of where you next want to go. It's, yeah. You're not thinking about that if that conversation has come to a natural end. So it's having, trying to do that while having a kind of part of your brain working on, okay, where potentially can this flow into next? Yeah. The, the other bit, yes, you're right. And the other bit is trying not to be clever. And by that, what I mean is 
I've ruined lots of potentially good interviews by trying to get through insecurity on my own part, trying to make sure that the person I'm interviewing knows that I know what they're talking about. Or I'm, I, I know as much as they do, or I'm listen to me trying to be there, not be a mate, but just trying to sort of get in and ensure that they, they don't go away thinking I'm an idiot. Now I'm beyond that, but I say that's a, that's a tendency that I fight a lot because I don't want both, both in interviews, but also in writing as well, trying not to teach, it might be being, having, being a teacher actually, um, trying not to teach anyone anything. I, I, you know, I resist when people start to say, you know, and the learnings from this are, and LinkedIn is great for this, isn't it? You know, people trying to- Any event on LinkedIn, has yeah, desperately five trying we to- learnt in business create. from this boxing fight. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's just sort of, it's so boring and- it, it, again, I've, I've taken a sort of uh, a decision to try at all costs to avoid it. Sometimes it's, you know, it's really hard. Sometimes it's really hard. Your ego gets in the way. But trying to step out of the interview is quite, you know, is, is, a, is a big priority, I think. There is a, quite often, and this is more probably in, in, in written, but it's still in, in also in podcasts um, and particularly in business sort of stuff because people think that you want their opinion when actually you want stories. You want them to, to say, this is what happened and, and then this, but they want to position themselves as the, as the sort of um, thought leader. I mean, because there is a commercial value in that and it's quite difficult to do that and not be boring and not be, you know, listen to me because we've all been to conferences where basically you have a panel of people who vying to be remembered as the person and then waiting for the work to flow your way because you're the guy that knows about. How do you deal with that? Because obviously you do panels as well. You've done panel for yeah. me. I was six years ago, almost exactly. Vibe bar. Do you remember being there? I do. And Lindsay Hooper was one of the panelists. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And uh, I think, was that the night where they had a, they suddenly kicked off with the music downstairs? Yes, that's right. It was in, <laughs> so the floor was, was literally Lane, vibrating. <laughs> I do remember that actually. Yeah. I was talking to Lindsay about it actually when we met recently. Um, well, they're a bit more they're a bit more cleansed now. That I always quite liked the 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 sort of there was a rowdiness. The rustic to those. feel. Yeah, there was a, that. I mean, that night it was like a sort of playing the sort of beer keller. You had to talk know. up because no one could hear you because of all the music going on yeah, downstairs. That's right. Yeah, there was a, it was and again that was I think you were ahead of the game there and because. That atmosphere is something that's lacking in lots of conferences, you know. So when you, you know, to your point about panels, it might be impossible to get do a brilliant panel. <laughs> it might just be the format is wrong, unless there's tension in the room. And quite often, for commercial reasons, conference owners don't allow tension in the room. They won't allow, you know, they they say they try and build up a sort of them and uh, one against the other, but actually everyone is fiercely agreeing with it, you know each other. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's frustrating and we've all suffered from either being on panels or hosting panels or watching panels where it's just dreary. I want to finish up with a few quick fires. Oh God. Okay. First is a couple, because we haven't actually got through to these questions. So I'm <laughs> going to do them quick fire instead. Okay. Uh, best interview. I would say, um, Nassim Taleb was extraordinary. For, from a personal reason, I'm not saying the output was was 
much, but I did, I really enjoyed it. So he wrote Black Swans and, and, uh, Fall by Randomness. And, and there was a mo there was a period when we talked about the Irish Times, when I came back from the Irish Times, I, I worked as a sort of feature writer, uh, feature interviewer in London. And they would, it's basically people who are flogging books and films and various things. Um, I would pick them up in London because they couldn't be asked to go to Dublin. So I would get people like Gladwell and Chris Anderson who wrote The Long Tail and that sort of niche. And Taleb is incredibly, you know, he's the, by far the smartest person I've ever been in the room with. At the time, he was he was also quite a nice bloke. He's, he's sort of on Twitter these days, he's become this real contrarian figure, very divisive. Um, but at the time, I, I had a lot of, you know, an admiration for him. So that would be my personal favorite. Obviously, Richie Benno being up there as well, surely. Worst interview. It doesn't have to be a person. It could be a technical one as well. When so one of those times, so okay. So I've got there's a, there's a few. I mean, uh, the technical one. The worst technical thing was I got I interviewed Susan Greenfield, Baroness Susan Greenfield at the House of Lords, um, who is a brain specialist and researcher. Brilliant woman did a fantastic interview and didn't press record so went off without it you know on the bus home listening to it and it wasn't there so that was the terrible one there was there's one that's bad for another reason which is that i interviewed i went to the to turkey to interview paula marty the the uh, spanish golfer and i saw her on the putting green the night before it was on the saturday night so I went over and we had a i'd said look i'm from the irish times and golf world and uh, would you uh, be up for an interview. Great. Okay. Sat down and it was fantastic. The interview was brilliant. She was really gossipy talking about all sorts of things, you know, lesbians on the LPGA tour and how the money goes, all the agents and all the, it was just fantastic. So I say, thank you. Off I go. Um, and she says, come see me tomorrow, you know, cause I'm, she's playing on the last day she was in. The, so I go onto the first tee and the announcer says, and on the first tee, Paula Marty and the woman I interviewed, it wasn't Paula Marty. So I've interviewed someone else. <laughs> and Did you figure out who? Well, yeah. I fi- and she's about, first of all, she was almost a foot shorter than Paula Marty. Paula Marty is this sort of quite, sort of uh, Amazonian golfer, about six foot. And the one I interviewed was like sort of about five foot and was quite, it was about number 240 in the world. And no, no one had ever interviewed her in her, you know, in her life, complete unknown. And, I, she had been sitting next to Paula Marty's bag on the, on the green. So I had assumed the two, and there was a sort of vague resemblance. I'd seen obviously photos, but, and then, so yeah, that would be comfortably my worst. Okay. And last bit, I want to take a bit from your podcast. Overrated, underrated. Oh, there you go. Which I stole myself from, uh, these things are always regurgitated, yeah, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I did. Uh, Pochettino. Um, okay. I am going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say overrated. Because one, because he was rated so highly, but secondly, I think the last two years have been a sort of extended sulk, which has coloured my view of his tenure. And I think that actually here we are 48 hours after the event, he's gone and I'm feeling okay about it. I might live to regret that, but uh, I really, really liked him a lot. I like really, really liked him, got a lot of time for him. So it's a lot for me to say he's, he's uh, overrated, but given how rated he is, he's got to be overrated. Podcasts. Podcasts are very underrated as a, as a form, as a medium for all the reasons we talked about. And I think that if they can maintain or the ones that maintain the, the sort of vibe, which is hard given that everyone is flooding into them. And by that, I mean that 
I enjoy conversation, you know, different types of podcasts do different things. I'm really interested in, in expanding into other forms, uh, formats in terms of sort of episodic type stuff in my world of, you know, the sports biz. Um, but I still like the interview piece when it's done well, but yeah, I, I think underrated. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for giving your insights and just always enjoy chatting to you. And you, mate. Good luck with this. It's a great idea. And uh, yeah, carry on podding. Cheers. Thanks to Rich for his time. And thanks again to Julian at Milson Reefering allowing us to take over one of their meeting rooms. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode and what you took from it. Get in touch on Twitter at, at Daniel McLaren and Instagram at Daniel J McLaren or Tables Turned Podcast. Or head to our Anchor page and leave a voice message on there. Thanks for getting through to the end. Remember to subscribe or follow us so you don't miss any of the exciting ones coming up. And check the other podcasts in this series out as well if you haven't already, including ones with David Garrido, Faker Others and The Creative Rebels. Thank you for listening. Please take care of yourself and I'll see you again next week.